Chapter Two, Part Six of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part Six of Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Part Six. Come now to Route 38140. Charge? Filing false and forged petitions. Evidence? All the petitions genuine. Second charge? Transmitting a false oath and making it. Evidence? Oath made by John W. Dorsey and true. That is all there is to that route. If they can make up any more, I want to see it. I have been through this record. Route 38113. Charge. Fraudulently filing a subcontract. That is all. You cannot fraudulently file a subcontract. Route 40113. Charge. Filing false and forged petitions. Evidence. Every petition admitted by the government to be genuine good second transmitting a false oath evidence oath made by john w dorsey and the government introduced no witness to show that it was false see how these charges fall see how they bite the ground that is all i have told you every one in this indictment every one you will hardly believe it now let me give you the recapitulation s w dorsey is charged on eight routes with having transmitted four false oaths the evidence is he never made one nor transmitted one and that the four oaths were all true on five routes he is charged with having filed false petitions the evidence is that all the petitions were genuine None of the petitions charged in the indictment to have been transmitted by him were transmitted by him. He is charged with filing fraudulent subcontracts, and the evidence is that the subcontracts were genuine, and besides that, as I have said a dozen times, it is utterly impossible to fraudulently file a subcontract. Not a single solitary charge in this indictment against Stephen W. Dorsey has been substantiated. Not one. He has been called a robber. He has been called a thief. But the evidence shows he is an honest man. Not one single thing alleged in that indictment has been substantiated against him, and I defy any human being to point to the evidence that does it. Now think of it. All this charge has been made against that man upon that evidence, no other evidence, not another line so far as the indictment is concerned. What is outside of the indictment? That he wrote two letters, taking possession of routes that had been turned over to him as security, which he had a right to do. What else? That he got up some petitions, or had them gotten up, in the state of Oregon, the man who got them up was brought here as a witness. I believe his name was Wilcox. He swore that everything he did was honest, 
and that every name to every petition was genuine. Now let us see. Another point has been made upon S.W. Dorsey. I want to read it to you. This is from the argument of Mr. Merrick. Quote, Peck, John W. Dorsey, and Minor, or some other one of Stephen W. Dorsey's friends. Who was making up this conspiracy? Who was gathering around him arms and hands to reach into the public's treasury for his benefit, while his own were apparently unoccupied with pelf? S. W. Dorsey. My brother and brother-in-law will go in and minor, or if not minor, then one of my other friends. End quote. This is quoted. Quote, one of S. W. Dorsey's other facile friends. That was in 1877, gentlemen, the morning of this day of fraud and criminality. In that room where Boone and S. W. Dorsey sat arose the sun, and there was marked his course. There was fashioned the duration and the business of that criminal day. End quote. Now let us see what the evidence is. The object of that speech is to convince you that Dorse said to Boone, quote, I will either put in minor or one of my friends. End quote. Do you know that there is not money enough in the treasury of the United States? There is not gold and silver enough in the veins of this earth? to tempt me to misstate evidence when a man is on trial for his liberty or his life? Let us see what the evidence is. Quote, Who else besides his brother-in-law and brother? Answer. I could not say positively whether Mr. Minor's name was mentioned. He either mentioned his name or a friend of his from Sandusky, Ohio. End quote. Now, I submit to you, gentlemen, what does that mean? Mr. Boone, in effect, says, quote, He told me either it was Minor or a friend of his from Sandusky. That is, he either described Minor by his name, or he described him as a friend of his from Sandusky. End quote. Then there was objection made, and after that comes another question. Quote, question. Was anything said of Mr. Miner's coming to Washington? Answer. I could not say whether his name was mentioned or a friend of his, a personal friend. End quote. What does that mean? Boone cannot remember whether he called him Miner or called him a friend of his from Sandusky? What else? Quote. Answer. There was to be nobody that I understood outside of the parties I spoke of. Question. You and John W. Dorsey and Peck? Answer. And Mr. Minor. Question. Or one of his friends? Answer. Or Mr. Dorsey's friend. The arrangement made was not made until they came here. It was only to prepare the necessary blanks and papers pending their coming, because the time was getting short, and it was necessary to get the information to bid upon. Nothing was said about any interest at all until after they came here, and then there was a partnership entered into. End quote. Now, I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, what is the meaning of that testimony? 
the meaning is simply this boone could not remember whether he mentioned miner's name or called him a friend of his from sandusky yet the object has been to make you believe that the testimony was that s w dorsey said quote, i will either have miner or i will get another friend of mine end quote. dorsey had no interest in it not the interest of one cent not the interest of one dollar directly indirectly or any other way he had no interest in having a friend of his all that mr boone said is that mr dorsey either called this man minor or described him as a friend from sandusky ohio the evidence is that mr minor did come and the evidence is that the arrangement was made what else is there outside in this case against stephen w dorsey i ask you to put your hand upon it i ask anybody to point it out what other suspicious circumstance is there i want you to understand that all the suspicious circumstances in the world are good for nothing all the evidence on earth tending to show a thing does not show it anything that only tends that way never gets there never you cannot infer a conspiracy unless you have the facts proved you cannot infer the fact and then infer the conspiracy there has not been i want to say it again there has not been a solitary fraudulent act proven against stephen w dorsey they have not done it and they cannot do it all i ask of you gentlemen is to find a verdict in accordance with this testimony may it please the court it appears from the evidence in this case, I think the evidence of Mr. James, that Stephen W. Dorsey at one time, about sixteen or seventeen months ago, made a statement in writing of his connection with all these routes. That statement he gave to the Attorney General and the Postmaster General. There is no evidence of what was in that statement. The only evidence is that such a statement was made embracing his connection with these routes the court you offered to prove that mr ingersoll oh no the reason it was established was i wanted to show whether that statement was made before or after mr rodell made a statement the fact simply appears that he made a statement the court you offered to prove the fact Mr. Ingersoll. I do not remember offering to prove it. I proved it. The Court. If it was not proven, Mr. Ingersoll interposing, I did prove it as a fact. The Court. That he made a statement. Mr. Ingersoll. Yes, sir. Right here it is. Taking up the record. The Court oh well you cannot base any remarks upon that mr ingersoll let me read what the evidence says Quote, question was this statement of rodell's made to you after you had received the statements of s w dorsey as to his connection with all these entire routes or with this entire business the witness to what statements do you refer Mr. Ingersoll. 
to the statement that was made in writing and given to you and the attorney general by ex-senator s w dorsey answer it must have been after that question you mean Rodell's statement was after that answer yes sir question did you ever see that statement made by senator dorsey answer it was referred to the attorney general question did you ever see it answer certainly question do you know where it now is answer i do not End quote. i'm not going to say a word about what was in that statement but the court will see that that has a direct bearing upon their action with regard to rodell's statement whether it was made before or after, which I will endeavor to show. And the only point that I wanted to make upon that statement now was that the government has not endeavored to prove that anything in that statement was inconsistent with the evidence in this case. I am not going to say what the statement was, simply that he made a statement, and it follows as naturally as night follows morning and morning follows night that if that statement had been incorrect, it would have been brought forward. That is all. The Court For anything the Court knows, it might have been a confession. We do not know anything about it. Mr. Ingersoll If it had been a confession, it would have been here. That is the point I make. If there had been in that anything inconsistent with the testimony, it would have been here the court probably it would mr ingersoll yes sir that is my point the court when a man is charged with crime no man has a right to say that because he did not deny it that is evidence of his guilt mr ingersoll no sir and no man has a right to say that because he did deny it is evidence of his innocence the court it is not evidence either way mr ingersoll it is not evidence either way and if i am charged with a crime and i make a written statement to the government of my entire connection with that thing and they go on and examine it for one year and finally finish the trial without showing that the statement was incorrect it is a moral demonstration that my statement agreed with the testimony. The Court On the principle, I suppose, of an account rendered and no objection made? Mr. Ingersoll Good. That is a good idea. The Court I do not see anything in that. Mr. Ingersoll I see a great deal in it and it is a question whether the jury can see anything in it. The Court It is a question whether the Court, too— Mr. Ingersoll interposing. Very well. The Court continuing. Whether the Court is going to allow an argument to be based upon a mere vacuum, wind, nothing. Mr. Ingersoll That would seem to be stealing the foundation of this case laughter and cries of silence from the bailiffs we will consider the argument made to the court and not to the jury 
the next question then is what is the corpus delecti that is in a case of conspiracy i do not believe the combination to be the corpus delecti the mere association it may be the corpus but it is not the delecti and under the law there must not only be a conspiracy as i understand it but also an overt act done by one of the conspirators to accomplish the object of the conspiracy so that the conspiracy with the fraudulent purpose and the overt act constitute the corpus delecti now i read from best on presumption page 279 Quote, the corpus delecti the body of an offense is the fact of its actually having been committed End quote. the dead body in a murder case is not the corpus delecti it is the corpse and nothing more it must be followed by evidence that murder was committed the corpus delecti is the body substance or foundation of the offense it is the substantial and fundamental fact of its having been committed one haggard 105 opinion by lord stowell i now refer you to peoples versus powell 63 new york page 92 it seems that the defendants in this case were commissioners of charities of the county of kings and they were indicted for conspiring together to buy supplies contrary to law and without duly advertising their defense was that they were not aware that such a law existed that they were ignorant of the law the court below thought that made no difference the court above said before they could be guilty of this crime there must be the intention to commit the crime and this language is used Quote, the agreement must have been entered into with an evil purpose as distinguished from a purpose simply to do the act prohibited in ignorance of the prohibition this is implied in the meaning of the word conspiracy mere concert is not conspiracy End quote. so combination is not conspiracy partnership is not conspiracy neither is it the corpus delecti of conspiracy there must be the evil intent there must be the wicked conspiracy not only but there must be one at least overt act done in pursuance of it before the corpus delecti can be established quote, the actual criminal intention belongs to the definition of the offense and must be shown to justify a conviction for conspiracy the offense originally consisted in a combination to convict an innocent person by perversion of the law it has since been greatly extended but i am of opinion that proof that the defendants agreed to do an act prohibited by statute followed by overt acts in furtherance of the agreed purpose did not conclusively establish that they were guilty of the crime of conspiracy End quote. it would be hard to find a stronger case in my judgment than that although they agreed to violate a statute they agreed to buy supplies without complying with the statute by advertising they claimed they were in ignorance of it and the question was whether they were guilty of conspiracy having no intent to do an illegal act and the court of appeals decided that the verdict could not stand 
the court. Because the court below had instructed the jury that whether what they did was done in ignorance or with knowledge, it made no difference. Mr. Ingersoll. Certainly, it made no difference. Everybody is supposed to know the law. Now the next point is, and great weight has been put upon it, gentlemen, that concurrence of action establishes conspiracy. That if one does a part and another another part, and finally the culmination comes, that is absolute evidence, or in other words, an inference. Admitting now that they were perfectly honest, if any of these parties made a bid, that bid had to be accepted by the government. They had to act together. The department and the man had to act together to have the bid accepted. The department and the man had to act together to make the contract. The department and the man had to act together to get the pay, and no matter how perfectly honest the transaction was, they had to act together from the first step to the payment of the last dollar. Now, in a business where they do have to act together, where one necessarily does one thing and the other necessarily does another, the fact that that happens does not even tend to prove that there is any fraud. Upon this concurrence of action, I refer to the case of Metcalf against O'Connor and wife, in Little's Select Cases, 497. One of the men confessed that a large party went to the house where there was a disturbance, and where they tried to take by force a boy from the custody of a man and woman. Now the fact that these men did go to the house, the fact that they were there at the time this happened, and the fact that one of the conspirators, or one of the trespassers, had confessed that he went there, and that the other went with him for that purpose, the court decides that you cannot infer the purpose of these men from the statement of the other. Neither can you infer it from the fact that they were there. You must find out for what purpose they were there by ascertaining what they did and when they were there, and that concurrence in actions shows nothing. The Court Did you not say that the decision there was that the conspiracy might be inferred from the combination to do the act? Mr. Ingersoll I will just read it, and then there will be no guessing about it. Quote, this is a writ of error prosecuted by the defendants to a judgment for the plaintiffs in an action of trespass for an assault and battery alleged to have been committed upon the plaintiff, Anne, the wife of the other plaintiff. We are of the opinion that the circuit court erred in refusing to instruct the jury, at the instance of the defendants, to find for all of them, except for the defendant Metcalf. He is the only one of the defendants proven to have touched the defendant Anne, and against the other defendants there is no evidence conducing in the slightest degree to prove them guilty of committing any assault or battery upon her, or of any intention to do so. It is true that it was proved that the other defendants confessed that they were at the house of Connor when the assault and battery charged is alleged to have been committed and it was also proved that Metcalf confessed that he and the other defendants had gone there for the purpose of taking from Connor by force 
an idiot boy whom he had in his custody. But the circumstances of the other defendants being at Connor's house, there is no evidence they were there for any unlawful purpose, nor can it itself be sufficient to render them responsible for any act done by Metcalf in which they did not participate. And the confessions of Metcalf are certainly not legitimate evidence against the others to prove the unlawful purpose with which they went to Connor's, and thereby to charge them with the consequences of his act. End quote. Now to all appearances they went there together. To all appearances they went there for the one purpose, and Metcalf, the man who really did the mischief, confessed that they all went there for the one purpose, but the court held that that was not sufficient. Quote, Where several agree or conspire to commit a trespass, or for any other unlawful purpose, they will, no doubt, all be liable for the act of any one of them done in execution of the unlawful purpose. And when the agreement or conspiracy is first proved by other evidence, the confession of one of them will be admissible evidence against the others. But it is well settled that the confession of one person cannot be admitted against the others to prove that they had conspired with him for an unlawful purpose. End quote. Now, the next evidence that I wish to allude to, gentlemen, is the evidence of Mr. Walsh, and I will only say a few words, because it has been examined, and it has been ground to powder. Everything in this world is true in proportion that it agrees with human experience, and you can safely say that everything is false, or the probability is that it is false, in proportion that it is not in accordance with human experience. Other things being equal, we act substantially alike. Now, when anything really happens, everything else that ever happened will fit it. You take a spar crystal. I do not care how far north you get it. And another spar crystal, no matter how far south you get it, and put them together, and they will exactly fit each other. Exactly. The slope is precisely the same. And it is so with facts. Every fact in this world will fit every other fact, just exactly. Not a hair's difference. But a lie will not fit anything but another lie made for the purpose. Never. It never did. And finally there has to come a place where this lie, or the lie made for the sake of it, has to join some truth. And there is a bad joint always. And that is the only way to examine testimony. Is it natural? Does it accord with what we know? Does it accord with our experience? Now take the testimony of Mr. Walsh, and I find some improbabilities in it. Just let me read you a few. 1. Bankers and brokers do not, as a rule, loan money without taking at least a note. That is my experience. And the poorer this broker is, the less money he has, the more security he wants. He not only wants an endorser, but he would like to have a mortgage on your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That is the first improbability. 2. Bankers and brokers do not, as a rule, take notes that bear no interest, or in which the interest is not stated. 
people who live on interest find it always to their interest to have the interest mentioned always i never got a cent of a banker that i did not pay interest and generally in advance three bankers and brokers do not as a rule take notes payable on demand because such notes are not negotiable four it is hardly probable that when a banker and broker holds the note of another for twelve thousand dollars the note being unpaid he would loan thirteen thousand five hundred dollars more taking another note on demand in which the rate of interest was not stated five it is still more improbable that the same banker and broker with a note for twelve thousand dollars and one for thirteen thousand five hundred dollars being unpaid would loan five thousand four hundred dollars more without taking any note or asking any security six when such banker and broker called upon his debtor for a settlement and exhibited the two notes and thereupon his debtor took the two notes and put them in his pocket it is highly improbable that the banker and broker would submit to such treatment seven it is improbable that such banker and broker would afterwards commence suit to recover the money without mentioning to his attorney in fact that the notes had been taken away from him eight it is also improbable that the banker and broker would commence another suit for the same subject matter and still keep the fact that the notes had been taken from him by violence a secret from his attorney nine if mr brady took the notes by force it is improbable that he would immediately put himself in the power of the man he had robbed by stating to him that he brady was in the habit of taking bribes ten it is impossible that mr brady could in fact have done this which amounted to saying this quote, i have taken twenty five thousand five hundred dollars from you of course you are my enemy of course you will endeavor to be revenged and i now point out the way in which you can have your revenge i am second assistant postmaster general i award contracts increases and expedition and upon these i receive twenty per cent as a bribe i am a bribe taker i am a thief make the most of it i give you these tacks in order that i may put a weapon in your hands with which you can obtain your revenge there are also other improbabilities connected with this testimony if mr brady was receiving twenty per cent of all increases and expeditions amounting to hundreds of thousands of dollars per annum it is not easy to see why he would be borrowing money from mr walsh now if that story is true boil it down and it is this because if he got this twenty per cent from everybody he had oceans of money boil it all down and it is this a rich man borrows without necessity and a poor banker loans without security these twin improbabilities would breed suspicion in credulity itself no man ever believed that story no man ever will there is something wrong about it somewhere unnatural improbable and it is for you to say gentlemen whether it is true or not not for me what is the effect of that testimony 
so far as my clients are concerned it is admitted i believe by the prosecution it was also stated i believe by his honor from the bench that it could not by any possibility affect any defendant except mr brady and the question now is can it even affect him i call the attention of the court to fortieth new york page two twenty eight i give the page from which i read quote, to make such admissions or declarations competent evidence it must stand as a fact in the cause admitted or proved that the assigner or assignees were in a conspiracy to defraud the creditors if that fact exist then the acts and declarations of either made in execution of the common purpose and in aid of its fulfillment are competent against either of them the principle of its admissibility assumes that fact End quote. that the conspiracy has been established quote, in case of conspiracy where the combination is proved the acts and declarations of the conspirators are not received as evidence of that fact but to show what was done the means employed the particular design in respect to the parties to be affected or wronged and generally those details which assuming the combination and the illegal purpose unfold its extent scope and influence either upon the public or the individuals who suffer from the wrong or show the execution of the illegal design but when the issue is simply and only was there a conspiracy to defraud these declarations do not become evidence to establish it so far then as the admission of the evidence in this case of declarations subsequent to the assignment is sought to be sustained as evidence of the common fraud on the ground of conspiracy the argument wholly fails a conspiracy cannot be proved against three by evidence that one admitted it nor against assignees by proof that the assigner admitted it it is a fact that must be proved by evidence the competency of which does not depend upon an assumption that it exists End quote. so to the same point is the case of cowles against co twenty-first connecticut two twenty i will read that portion of the syllabus that conveys the idea quote, to prove the alleged conspiracy between the defendant and g the plaintiff offered the declaration of r stating declarations made by g to r while g was engaged in purchasing goods of him on credit and relative to g's responsibility and means of obtaining money through the defendant's aid these declarations were objected to not on the ground that the conspiracy had not been sufficiently proved but because the defendant was not present when they were made it was held that they were admissible within the rule regarding declarations made by a conspirator in furtherance of the common object End, quote. End of ingersoll's closing address to the jury in the first star route trial part six of seven read by roger moline